My topic um, for today is about bringing mindfulness home. And um, I'll start with a joke, actually, I just heard from uh, Gulu. So here's the joke. This is, uh, well, I found it very, very funny. We'll see how you all relate to it. So here's the joke. How many meditators does it take to change a light bulb? So you can reflect on that for a moment. The light bulb never gets changed. There's just a lot of noting darkness, darkness, <laughs> darkness, darkness. All right, good. You thought it was funny. I thought it was pretty funny. Mildly, uh, Diana's like, eh, it's quaint. We're trying to come up with a repertoire of jokes that we can tell, the retreat-related. So bear with us. We're still, we're still figuring it out. So let me ask you um, some questions. So I know you're still in silence, but we'll just do kind of raising hands so I can get a gauge. So right now, as you check in with your experience, how many of you are feeling kind of an excited, kind of buzzy, you know, hovering kind of energy? All right, there it is. Very confident knowing of that. So, okay. Okay, all right. How many of you are feeling maybe just this sort of confused, slightly disoriented, not quite sure, where am I? What time is it? Where am I supposed to be? Anybody feeling that? A little bit of kind of, okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, how about just a sense of kind of tenderness or vulnerability or rawness or an openness? Okay. So you can see that there's a whole range and there's so many other questions that I could ask, but I just wanted to point out that there is this whole range of the human condition, the human experience right here in this very room. So we're living proof of this um, incredible range of what it means to be human, what it means to be alive to have this body, to have this mind, and to have this heart. So I wanted to share a little bit of um, context, I guess, from my own understanding of this kind of intense retreat practice and just see if any of this is true. It may not be true for everyone in this room, but it may actually really resonate for some of you. So you may not know it, but when we come into... Uh, a retreat format like this, often there's a period where we're working through what I call this kind of anesthetized phase, where we're kind of like this anesthesia, we're anesthetized, we're kind of numb, we're not really, um, we're maybe even a little bit intoxicated, like we're just kind of, we don't even know it. But there's something that we sense um, that we're bringing with us from the outside into this retreat container. Sometimes it can be really cynical. I've had... Um, retreats where I came into practice and I just felt really cynical. I felt really jaded. Um, and often this can show up in different forms early on. Many of you may have noticed this, sleepiness, the kind of mind that just constantly is racing with all of these thoughts all the time. Um, there can be the sense of just kind of nervous energy or hovering, all kinds of different ways that this can show up. And this is where we're just working through that first layer, that first layer of kind of arriving. And it's because so much of the outside world, it has such an impact on it, but we're not fully aware of that impact until we take the time to slow down, to give ourselves a chance to take a breath, a full in breath and out breath, and to really be with our experience. So after that first layer kind of wears off, often we encounter another layer underneath. And this layer underneath is a different kind of being. And it can show up in many different ways. So sometimes it can show up as frustration, uh, kind of a wanting to get it, 
Uh, it can be pain, physical pain, emotional pain, or it can be this feeling of like we need to achieve something because we still have this energy of needing to achieve, which is so strong in the outside world. There needs to be something that needs to be gained, understood, acquired, or held on to. And then you'll hear us on the teaching team constantly repeating these instructions of relaxed attention, relaxed attention, or soften into the object of meditation. What's the felt sense of your experience? What does it mean to be embodied? What's this embodied awareness, right? And you'll hear us say, it's not a doing, it's rather an inviting. It's an inviting, a letting come, a receiving, right? So you've heard this in so many different ways, in so many different words, in so many different stories, these instructions. So I sometimes like to think of it, and I've shared this in some of the, um, the group meetings, it's a little bit like a fiddlehead fern. So if you don't know what that is, it's those little uh, ferns that are curled over like this, so that when we first enter the retreat, we're all curled over and we don't even know it. And then as we stay in the retreat and we just show up this kind of sincerity, this wholeheartedness, the fern starts to slowly unfurl and it takes time, right? And there may be movements where it goes back a little bit and then it kind of extends again. And then at some point you see that frond really open up. And this is the third layer. So this kind of where the, the, the frond is out, it's, it's fully open. It can show up in many different ways. Sometimes it can show up as a kind of spaciousness. It can show up as an aliveness. Sometimes it's just lots of movement. There's just lots going on in this kind of mind, body, heart. It can be emotions, it can be thoughts. Some, for some of us it shows up as joy or curiosity or possibility. We have this renewed sense of possibility or an aliveness that we just, you know, everything is more sensitive as we kind of interact with the world around us. For others of us, and definitely for me in my own practice, often it showed up, as uh, Jack Cornfield likes to say, as tears of the way. So this is a different kind of aliveness, and I want to name this and bring it into the hall because this may be your experience. And so this is where we experience the multidimensionality of what it means to be a human. And so it means that we have this kind of rawness, this tenderness. We have this exquisitely aching heart. We have this body that is just alive with the sensations of all the aches and the pains, and yet we're open to it in a way that we've never been open to it before. And often it can bring this, these kind of tears, these tears of the way, or spiritual tears that are different. And many of you have reported that in the group meetings, that there's a kind of tears that feels different than the normal kind of tears. So this is also the space of opening. This is when that frond is completely open, that fern is open. So Rumi, um, as many of you know, has um, a wonderful um, uh, poem about this. And so I'll just read an excerpt from this. This is called The Guest House. So this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, 
still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. So these are the words of how these tears of the way open us in a different way. So if this is your experience, know that this is your experience. And I want to just reassure you that there is a uniqueness to everyone's journey. So no two by the same way is one of the oldest teachings. So no two by the same way. We all have to find our own path. And in this journey, it's one of a mysterious kind of twists and churns. There's switchbacks and we get lost and we lose the trailhead and we go for a while and we kind of bushwhack and then we find our way back. This is all part of the journey. And one of my favorite um, expressions of this is from the late Mary Oliver who has the poem called The Journey. And what I want to share about this is that when you listen to this poem, The Journey, notice how it starts with this sense of being in a house. It's like we're, we're starting confined in this constricted space. And you can interpret the house in many ways. But then as the journey unfolds, it's stepping out from that confined space into the aliveness of everything around. So this is the journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life. Each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. Determined to do the only thing you could do, Determined to save the only life you could save. So this journey is one that is uniquely personal. And each of us is on our own journey. And at this point, you may be anticipating the next part of your journey, even though you're still in the midst of it right now. And that anticipation may take you to, well, what happens when I leave this retreat and when I re-enter my big life? So I have a little secret for you. You ready for the secret? You sure you're ready? Yeah? This was all preparation for the real retreat. The real retreat is your life. Everything that you're doing here is preparation 
for what you have to live and what you have to offer in the world. And this means that you're going to make mistakes. This means that you're going to forget, that you're going to lose your way. But trust that you know the trail. You've walked it. You've been here. You've experienced it. You know it from the inside. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you some core principles that I use as a way to kind of integrate for this real retreat, this retreat that we call life. And it's what I've learned the hard way over many, many years of practice. And I'm not going to talk about the nuts and bolts because we will talk about that in the questions and even tomorrow morning. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point you to some principles that I think can serve as a kind of guidepost along the way. So the first principle is that intention matters. So if you remember on the opening night, we took these ethical practices and we repeated them as a group. And those ethical practices really gave us a foundation for being able to understand our body, our heart, and our mind. And the essence of those practices was to not cause harm, was to live ethically. And there can be this worry or this concern that mindfulness is going to render us into some kind of lifeless, non-judgmental blob that's going to, we're going to be totally unequipped to function in the world. But what I'll tell you is that what I've learned is that this idea couldn't be further from the truth. And let me explain how. So one of my teachers, who's had a very, um, very deep influence on my practice, says this about intention. This is from Philip Moffat. Setting an intention is quite different than goal-making. It's not oriented towards a future outcome. Instead, it's a practice that is focused on how we are being in the present moment. Our attention is always on the ever-present now in the constantly changing flow of life. We set our intentions based on understanding what matters most and make a commitment to align our worldly actions with our inner values. So what Philip's pointing to is that it's at the level of behaviors, about how we show up. So you've been cultivating this aliveness, this sensitivity to your inner experience, to the outer experience. And based on that aliveness and sensitivity, we understand that we can take responsibility for that. Not in a rigid way, not in a should or a I must do, but in an understanding that it matters, that there's something of real value and worth here. So one of the classic examples is we might have this idea that somehow, this comes from another one of my teachers, Howie Cohen, that we need to take our small practice and fit it into our big life. And when we think of it that way, it's a conflict. Because how could we possibly fit our small practice into this full, big life. What we need to do is, how he says, is flip it around so that our life is an expression of our practice. So that what we've understood from watching our mind, watching our heart, from practicing together, from living in this way, then informs how we live. That's the real practice. 
because it's an applied in the world, in the moment. It's responsive. It's attuned. It's sensitive. And this is um, not easy, but what it means is that we need to have clarity about what matters to us, what's important to us. And so it's about reflecting, and you might take some time, I encourage you to do this, before you leave the kind of field that we're in, reflect on this question. What matters most to you? Because if you take a little time now to reflect, that clarity will serve you out in the world because you'll have a touchstone. You'll have a place that you can return to again and again. So the second principle that I want to share is that you are perfectly imperfect. And it means that because of that recognition, that's the space for kindness and compassion. So I sometimes have my students um, at the university take a vow of imperfection. So I'm going to have you take it with me now. So place your hand, right hand up, please. Repeat after me. I, state your name, Alex, vow to be an imperfect meditator. Which means, when I'm less than perfect, I will forgive myself and start again in this moment, which is a radical act of kindness. Thank you. So you're now sworn in. You're all imperfect meditators. And this is how you are perfectly imperfect. So this is why this starting again is a radical act of kindness. It, it's the healing balm that helps us to not get so caught and lost in our own humanity. And the other practice that I want to make sure that I share with you is around this principle of how we can understand knowing how to hold that which is most difficult. And this is where um, I want to point you to something in the back of the room. So take a moment and uh, turn around and look at that statue on the right. I'm going to explain a little bit of that statue to you for a moment. Many of you may have seen it and looked at it. That's the statue of Kuan Yin. And Kuan Yin is said to be the embodiment of compassion. And some of the symbolism of that statue, and this will help you with kind of the embodied feeling of what I'm talking about, of being able to hold life. It's said to be the posture of royal ease. And it's called the posture of royal ease because Kuan Yin has one hand touching the ground, touching the earth, and the other hand resting on the knee which is a kind of openness and availability, a kind of responsiveness to what's needed in any moment. And so as an archetype, as an embodiment of compassion, Kuan Yin is always ready, but grounded and responsive. Those two qualities are actually embodied in that posture. And so this is how we can meet even the most challenging, challenging circumstances in our life. And there's so many stories of this, right? So there's another story of 
um, similar, it's said to be a similar kind of embodiment of compassion where um, this being was trying to meet all of the suffering of the world and was trying to hold it, trying to contain it. And what happened in trying to hold it shattered into a thousand pieces. So you might have had that experience where it feels like I'm going to shatter in all these different directions. And so what happened is another being came along and said, ah, I see the problem here. You were trying to contain and hold. What you need is to actually open and engage with the sense of groundedness. So reconfigured the thousand pieces into the thousand arms. Each arm has an eye to see, to feel, to hear the world. But in the middle is the complete groundedness with the earth. So that's the kind of reconfiguration. It's like you come in here, there's the puzzle of your life. We take away all the different puzzle pieces, still the same pieces, but then you put them back together and a new picture emerges. That's part of this journey. So we meet that and we hold that with a compassion. And I'll show you one last visual. This is one where um, one of my teachers shared this and it was so helpful for me. I shared this a little bit in the group interviews. So if we think about life where we have these expectations, right, about how it should be, the way it needs to be, when we have those expectations and those ideas, when they're not met, it swings in the opposite direction to frustration, to anger, to all these different states where we get lost and confused and upset and it continues to swing. You see that? But what happens is if we just let it be, it naturally comes to a still point on its own. So this is where you come back to finding your center. You come back to finding your version of ground. And so you'll get caught up again. You will. You'll have expectations and all of those Uh, frustrations and things that you want to get. I need to understand this. I have to gain something. I have to achieve something. And then it'll set it in motion again. But then your task is just to remain aware and open and grounded. And eventually, in its own time, it stops swinging. And so this is the process again and again and again. We come back here, 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 now, now, now. With my daughter, uh, it's funny, she's almost two now. I've taught her this uh, little thing and she's kind of adapted it to her own. I was trying to teach her to be able to um, just rest because she was so active and she was so curious. But sometimes she would get so revved up, you know, that she was like running around and she was just like, and so I would say, rest, rest. So she now has done this where she's interpreted it. She's got a three-part thing where she'll go, rest and then she leans back on like a pillow or chair and then she'll go ha I said that's it you got it you got it so she'll go rest and then she'll pop right back up and say go again right so that's how it is that's how we are so just remember pause rest ha and then you'll get right back in it again okay so here's the third uh, piece that I'll share with you before I end This is the practice of equanimity. And so we'll be doing that uh, this evening uh, for the guided uh, loving kindness and other practices. And it's a really, really powerful practice. And here's what I'll share with you about it. We learn how to be in balance by knowing when we're out of balance. There's no other way to do this. So when you get out of balance, don't look at it as a mistake or something you did wrong or some failure, it's actually an opportunity to understand that you're out of balance and that helps you come back 
to your center. Come back to that place that feels connected and aligned with your values, compassionate, that's kind, you're imperfect, and yet you're right back, you're connected. So the founder of Aikido, Morihei Ushebe, uh, was asked one time when he was quite old and he couldn't walk anymore, but he still wanted to give instructions about Aikido. And for those of you that know Aikido, the way of Aikido is a way of non-harming. And so he would come into the dojo and he would get set. So they would literally, his students would carry him, would carry him because he couldn't walk anymore. But then they would place him in the spot in the dojo and he would say, mm, and he was set. And then people would come at him and he would just gracefully move them and take them and use the energy and bring them gently to the floor. And the student's mouth would just go, how are you doing this? And so one of the students said, how do you do this? And his answer was, I know where my center point is. I know where that place of equilibrium, of equanimity is for me. Once I'm in contact with that, you can't move me. And the student said, but don't you get off balance? Don't you? And he said, yes, of course I get off balance. But I get off balance, I come so quickly back to my center, you don't see it. So that's this teaching. We develop the sensitivity to notice we're off balance and then we come back. We develop this felt sense of what it means to constantly move. As Philip Moffat likes to say, we're dancing with life. There's a pliability and a movement to it. It's dynamic. So as I said, this means that we're going to make mistakes. And it means that there are some of these questions about, well, what do we do once we've made a mistake? How do we get realigned again with these deepest values? It sounds good in theory, but how do I do it? So this is where I sometimes like to bring in, this is a very old teaching. It's called the two guardians. But I interpret them slightly different. So these are what we can think of as our two guardians that we all have. They're guardians of the heart and the mind. And what they do is they help remind us. They provide us a kind of a guidepost to finding our center. So these two guardians are conscience, this inner voice that kind of is a guide. It can sometimes show up as like, ooh, yeah, there's something there in that interaction. So we have this sensitivity that gives us immediate feedback. This is the inner voice. The other guardian is the outer voice, concern. This is where we reflect on what do the wise people in the world do? How would they respond to the situation? Or you simply reflect for yourself, what would a wise response be here? So this is that concern on the behavioral level for how we are in the outer world. So conscience and concern. And so another one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, this is how he phrases it, and I love it. He says, if we don't properly understand these two guardians, we could use some approximation of these qualities to bludgeon ourselves with guilt, recrimination, feelings of unworthiness. On the other hand, we can hold them in the light of wisdom. This understanding manifests as holding a standard of behavior that can inspire restraint at critical moments or renewal in the many times that we fall short. We will get seduced many times, but having a reference point of understanding can, can inspire us to simply begin again. A very helpful teaching is that it's better to do an unwholesome act knowing it's unwholesome than to do it without knowing it. If we don't even know that something is unwholesome, then there's no motivation to change. 
but in knowing that something is unwholesome, even as we might be doing it, then the seeds of wisdom and future restraint are there. Yeah? So for me, that really, it provides clear guidance. It's really helpful. And so this means that we will feel the ouch of regret. We will, think, we will feel the sting of remorse. But we receive it as feedback in our awareness right now, right here. And this is what reconnects us to our awareness. And then it motivates us to act in a different way. We don't need to live completely in the past, but we understand it as a teaching here and now that informs how we live. It's a path of practice. So the last piece that I wanted to share with you, this has been so important for me, trust your knowing. Trust it. Don't give it up to somebody else. Trust your own knowing. And it's kind of like the uh, metaphor that Diana used earlier about uh, the radio. And so again, I'll date myself, analog radio rather than digital radio, right? So with analog radio, you've all tuned into a frequency here, your own particular frequency, and you've all experienced it differently, whether it was tears of the way, joy, opening, curiosity, possibility, aliveness, whatever it might be. Or it might even just be a respite from the weariness of the world. But you've, you've tuned into something. So you've now picked up that station. And as the retreat changes and everything is dissolving and new things are coming in and we're going back and all this is happening, you're going to pick up other stations, right? It's kind of like when you're tuning in and you can hear the other voices and the other songs and the announcers coming in. But if you listen, you can still hear the original signal. It's always there. It might not be quite as clear, but trust that you know it. Trust that you've had the lived experience of it. So that no matter how far you turn away from that station, it's still right there. It may be faint, but it's still there. It just takes pause, a moment, touch in with your own humanity, maybe pet a dog, and really allow yourself to feel what it means to be alive. So I'll end just by reading the journey one last time. And again, see if there's a different meaning the second time you hear it. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, 
And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own. That kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. Determined to do the only thing you could do. Determined to save the only life you could save. So thank you for your kind attention.